Hello friends, welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. As always, this is your host, Chris Harmon, and tonight we have a special event. We we are finally here at a at a moment that so many people have anticipated for four years now. So many people have have looked to as as hope. So many people have looked to in, in fear and in anxiety and but also with uh with hope for the future. And and I think regardless of what happens that there's a there's a necessity for a a new ethic a, a new step forward in in the age of of Trump in the age of post Trump in the age of during Trump and so tonight on election night I have the special opportunity to talk to the co-editors of the book keeping the faith so everybody I just want to say Welcome. This is my first time interviewing multiple people, so I'm not going to say all y'all's names. So if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourselves, that'd be awesome. Susie, we're waiting for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm Susie Lahoud. Uh, I'm Sai Hookstra. And I am Jonathan Walton. Thanks for having us here. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for being with me. I was so excited when when I got the opportunity to speak with all three of you. For like for real, it's it is a a mind blowing and and uh, humbling honor to to be able to talk to you guys. You guys, I'm so excited about what you guys are doing. Um, thanks, bro. but if if you guys wouldn't mind, I mean, just really quickly sharing like what like what you, your Christian journey has looked like so far that's brought you to. Uh, this point with with the work that you guys have put together. Yeah, so um, I guess I'll go first. Uh, Keeping the faith is really a, a response to um, a false narrative that that a number of us felt has developed in the United States um, and sort of hijacked the church from uh, an ethic of Christ when it comes to our political engagement. And so for me, part of where this started, I, I grew up as a missionary kid in Uzbekistan. So most of my early life was informed by my experience of living overseas in, under an authoritarian regime and seeing how the, the underground church worked there. Um, and then I came back to the States after graduating from university, felt God call calling me to go back overseas, ended up in Lebanon, where I met my husband. And then our first year of marriage was the year that this trickle of Syrian refugees into Lebanon became a flood due to the the heightening of the conflict in Syria. And so at that time, my husband and I felt God calling us to get more involved in humanitarian response. And we were able to do that through our local church. And then I came on board with uh, an NGO, a faith-based NGO that was working with with other Lebanese churches that were doing similar work in in outreach to the the Syrian community and providing basic assistance and and humanitarian support. And after doing that for a number of years, I sort of felt this need and desire to pivot towards the political sphere, honestly, because when you've been doing humanitarian work for a while, it sort of feels like you're constantly hitting your head up against this wall of these bigger issues that you can't address with just a band-aid of, you know, food assistance. 
or winterization or whatever it is you're offering. And so I ended up back in the States at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard. And this book is really, again, something that's been building up over time because this this has been decades in the making. Donald Trump is, he's a moment in time, but he's not the entire picture. He's really a symptom of a larger disease and a larger idolatry. And so mm-hmm. there were, as I said, a number of folks who have been stewing with these things and um, reflecting on these things for a long time. And so I'm really grateful that we were able to bring together those voices to critique the narrative, to try to reclaim our core values as Christians, to try to reimagine how as Christ followers we're called to engage politically. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what the initial desire was and how I sort of originally got on board. And when she says got on board, she means uh, came up with the idea for the entire project and executed it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at some point, a friend reached out to me and said he, he, a mutual friend of mine, Sudhis, and you know, he kind of gave me her, her pitch that she was sending around everybody. And, and she reached out and kind of explained that she wanted to put together a book that was, you know, meant to sort of correct the idea that Christians back Trump no matter what, and that there's a huge uh, array of political thought out there from people who are trying to be just as faithful to the words of Jesus and to the practice of Christianity as uh, anybody who is uh, claiming the kind of superiority of their theology by insisting that you have to vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. And um, we, you know, we, we wanted to and did succeed in getting people from all over the country, from like lots of different evangelical traditions, from a couple not evangelical traditions, from, you know, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. And, um, you know, wanted to give people, like I said, that a, a taste of that array of voices um, that, that do not see Donald Trump as uh, anyone who's as someone who's going to get their vote. Hmm. So anyways, I, I love that vision for a number of reasons, but um, I then called up Jonathan who, who I've known for a long time and, and they talked as well. And then Susie uh, brought us on to her team. Yeah. Um, I'm really, really glad I got that call from Cy and then was able to give a call to Susie. My name is Jonathan. As I said before, I work in campus ministry. I am on staff with the ministry that me and Cy were a part of as students at Columbia University. And um, Susie caught me on a night when I was did not have any responsibilities for a solid three months and was really trying to figure out how to develop a resource that would actually speak to this moment. Um, that I would be able to joyfully distribute to the thousands of students that are a part of our ministry. And this filled that, filled that and beyond. Like it is, I am really proud of the, the academics, the activists, the pastors, the leaders that are a part of this book. And like, yeah. I do think it is, um, it is only God's grace and his provision that we were able to come together and then get the people to contribute that did contribute um, and produce this resource that thousands of people are engaging with right now. And that I hope more people engage with for the next, I think, 10 to 15 years will be the, mm-hmm. the wake of what the Trump administration has done. Um, and I think that's how long it'll probably take a generation to correct um, 
what has happened through building institutions, planting seeds, and then in 10 or 15 years, those seeds to really bear fruit in the church in America. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's, that's what's so, I, gosh, I'm so glad how you guys, you guys all kind of played off of each other as like letting the story progress of how the, how this work came to be within the, the cooperation between the three of you. And I think that's what's so beautiful about having a team of, of people who have a similar goal, but have, have different backgrounds and, and different uh, worldviews or not necessarily different worldviews, but different experiences that it, it brings a, a whole new level of, I guess, like intimacy um, would be a good word to use of, of relatability for the reader. And, and there are so many things that we need to tackle so many things that that need to be talked about. But I guess for the sake of time, I just love to hear from all three of you of if there was one issue in the book that, that you guys talked about within this administration that you guys knew from the get-go this needed to be talked about what was that for you yeah i mean i, I guess i'll go first um again so we knew that we needed to address head-on the the topic of abortion um and mm. I, I think the reason for that is is fairly apparent just that evangelical voters and Christian voters in the United States, um, particularly white evangelical voters, have tended to be single issue voters for whom abortion sort of trumps all, um, no pun intended. And, uh, and so that was um, something we felt like we needed to, to address, but also because you know, it's really tragic. And this is something that, that I hope comes out through, through the articles and essays that we included. So just to give you a flavor, we have four pieces in the book that, that address this topic. One is by David French. Um, we have one by the historian Randall Balmer, and then two really fantastic anonymous essays um, that really address it in a more personal narrative form. And and so part of what comes out through through those first articles that I mentioned are just the fact that Christian voters, I think, have been sort of um, manipulated and this narrative of being, quote unquote, pro-life has been instrumentalized to encourage them to support a platform that ultimately is not pro-life in, in the greater sense and in, I think, mm. the biblical sense of what that term should mean. And so having said that, we, you know, we knew we needed to address that and dig into the history of it. And, and I'll let the, the guys expand on, on more of that, but we knew we needed to dig into the history of, of why that's the case, why this, this debate that you think you're having isn't really about what you think it's about. And you're mm. sort of being hoodwinked into voting in a certain way. Um, but it's not, you know, that, that's not achieving the thing that you think it's going to achieve. Um, but also we felt like we needed to then bring into the conversation, these other issues that should be, you know, pro-life like mm -hmm. immigration, like our foreign policy and the damage that we've done in the middle East and in other places around the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so that was kind of one of the launching points, but, but having said that, we definitely wanted to offer a broader array than just, than just that one topic. Hmm. I, I think, you know, adding on to that, it, or 
jumping off that a little bit, the, the David French piece in particular, I think is one that where if you are a single issue voter, or if you're just someone who grew up in that environment and you are really hung up on that particular issue, he breaks down why not voting for the Republicans. And even if even successfully voting for the Republicans and getting Roe versus Wade overturned does not actually lead to that significant of a reduction in abortions in America. Mm. And, you know, so if you don't understand why that is, I, that, that would be something that I would highly suggest reading. And it gives people then kind of the freedom to open up and think about more issues than just that one, <laughs> just that one Supreme yeah. Court case that determines your entire vote. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. So we did, we definitely knew from the beginning that we wanted to talk about abortion and a couple other topics as well, but some of it was determined a little bit by the essays that came in, right? Because we did not give like extremely specific uh, instructions to people. We just wanted to reach out to a broad coalition of people, like I said before, and get them to write about why Trump wasn't wasn't getting their vote or why the movement uh, that leads to so many Christians uh, voting for Trump is, is so problematic or so unbiblical. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we ended up with uh, a lot of topics that fit nicely into different sections in the book, right? So we start with kind of uh, discernment in voting and Christian political discourse and like why like now is such an urgent time for us to change. But then we kind of broaden out a little bit later and get more specifically into immigration and foreign policy and abortion and race and um, decolonization are, are, are the sections that come after that, the, the beginning stuff. So, um, and, and that was just what, what happened when we reached out to everybody, you know, <laughs> it was, yeah. so we, we knew, uh, like, we knew we wanted to talk about race. We knew we wanted to talk about idolatry. We knew we wanted to talk about abortion and immigration, a couple other things, but, um, it, it just worked out for us. Like it just worked out with the people that we reached out to. And, you know, what, what's really cool then is you get, you know, multiple different ways of thinking about, uh, all of those different issues. You get personal narratives, you get academic articles, um, you get people who are going at the race conversation from something broader than just strictly kind of black versus white. You get people who are going at decolonization from a bunch of different angles. Susie's article is in the decolonization section. Um, and I, I, I'm just like Jonathan said before, I'm really proud of how it turned out. Hmm. Yeah, I think if I was to narr- like to pinpoint an issue for me, I, I think it's important for me to hang out kind of in the prophetic tradition of calling out when we have beholden ourselves to idols. And so that to me was the thing, like all of this is idolatry. Like when we place something in the seat of Jesus as Lord of our hearts and Lord of the universe, then the, the wages of sin will always be death. And so like being able to come at that from like, people who are experts and activists because like the people who wrote are not people who are um inexperienced or whimsy or like doing things on a whim like these are people who are engaged in the work who also have um a significant amount to say um and so i think um being able to participate in something that unabashedly calls out the idol in the room was really important for me and i'm really glad we got to elevate and center voices that wouldn't necessarily be the ones calling out that idol um and being centered right so having someone like danny a spirit or daniela spirit to 
writing a piece or having someone like Tamise writing a piece, having someone like Wasam Al-Salibi writing a piece. Like these people are not going to be read by American readers on a regular basis, if not in their entire lifetimes. We yeah. read something from um, someone who is native to Hawaii or you re- would you read something a first time author who wouldn't have had something published before, but has a ra- an amazing voice would publish something that actually draws a line and doesn't equivocate with American foreign policy and things around the world. Like that, I think that's necessary. And I think the problem is that if I had a book that I wanted to give to a 21 year old right now on following Jesus, I would not have that book if it wasn't this one. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to give them Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. <laughs> I don't want to give them like Your Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I don't want to give them John Stott's Basic Christianity. I, d- I don't yeah. want to do that, right? You know, because it doesn't speak to the reality of them growing up in a world. Like if you're 20 years old, you haven't been alive when the U.S. was not at war. Yeah. Right? Like if you're 20 years old, like you don't know what it's like to live without social media if you're 20 years old like these these things don't like the world that you live in like is is fundamentally different than the world that you know ron sider who's 50 years ahead of us and wrote a book about the election but nobody who's 20 years old is going to read shout out to ron sider i think he's amazing but nobody (laughs) old is going to read that book you know um and so i think it's important to give people resources and it's important to call out the and be in the prophetic tradition of calling out idols and calling people back to, to faithfulness. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what's so, I think something that I keep coming up against within conversations with more conservative uh, friends is, is, is this idea that when, when they share something with me, like whether it's, I don't know, like a Fox article or if it's like a, whatever Ben Shapiro's news uh, outlet is or, or whatever it is like that is somehow reliable um, resourcing. Like that is somehow a a reliable thing for them. And whenever I return and be like, well, this is something that I'm reading or I'm working through or I'm wrestling with. It's uh, it's always like, well, I don't want to trust that. Like I, I don't, I don't buy that liberal agenda. And I think with a work like keeping the faith, it's, it's really difficult to, to look at it and be like, well, these people are just pushing some sort of liberal agenda. Like, it's very obvious that this is a, a work where people put blood, sweat and tears into the, the creation of, of what is now out there. But for, for those of us who, who are going to refer people to read this book or read parts of this book or, or send people screenshots of, of chapters or, or whatever the, 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 the circumstance might provide, like, and we get that response. What do we say? Like, I think that's something I keep coming up against is like, as people who have created content to equip Christians to deal with the current climate, like what, what would your response be to people who are like, that's just a part of the liberal agenda? I mean, we can't do anything about someone who has decided that everything that doesn't agree with them is fake news. Um, mm. So like there, there are people who this is not for <laughs> yeah right? like you have to have some willingness to be able to listen to uh an opposing viewpoint if you if you are a trump supporter and you are approaching our book um that said you know we did not 
there's nothing in this book. There are people in here who I think you would definitely be categorized as liberals. There are people in here who are lifelong Republicans. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, what you can, what you can say is this is not coming. Like we, we say explicitly in our introduction, the three of us don't necessarily agree with each other on everything. We don't necessarily agree with all of our contributors on everything. Our contributors don't agree with each other. Right. Yeah. It's people from all over the political spectrum saying, right. Donald Trump's not our man. Right. And nobody <laughs> here is saying, gosh, we just love Joe Biden so, so much. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, that is not, I can tell you that we've had this conversation. That is not any of the three of our position. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's a, we are trying to call people to be faithful to their, to their God and to their kingdom. And mm. we will have to continue to do that regardless of whether or not Donald Trump wins tonight or tomorrow, whatever, whenever the results are going to come in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think Sai is right in that if anybody asks that question, because that's happened to me on Facebook many times and I've just jumped into active Facebook debates and been like, go to the table of contents and tell me it's liberal. <laughs> like, go to the contributors and tell me that it's just conservatives like do that like go go to go to the book and tell me where we endorse joe biden hmm. like as a collective and say like this is like for the the green new deal right there are people in this <laughs> book that would definitely be for it and there are people in this book that think that would be the antichrist right so we need to <laughs> yeah. you know so i think i think the binding factor is America is not the kingdom of God. Donald Trump is not the Messiah. Jesus mm -hmm. is the Messiah. Do not be deceived. And that, I think, is the thing that Jesus prays for in John 19, that we would be a body that is not uniform by any means, but actually united, absolutely united in Christ. And I would say that all of the authors and contributors are that. Hmm. And I think too, one, one more thing I would point to is that's part of that, that diversity of voices um, is part of why we, we wanted to couch it in the, the language of reclaiming our core values. And, and I would say a, a similar analogy might be to, you know, we talk in theology about how you have close-handed theology and open-handed theology. So there, mm -hmm. there are core theological truths that you hold on to um, and that define your faith. And then there are open-handed things that we you know, I think there should be a lot of mystery in, in our faith and a lot of things that we constantly wrestle with and, you know, try to dive deeper into, but um, maybe can't know with the same level of certainty and, and you know, need to be open to to hearing other sides and perspectives. Um, and, and so I think, you know, to tie that to how we engage politically, I think a healthy democracy, and this should go without saying, is a place where you can have opposing viewpoints um, and, and dissenting opinions, but still have those core goals, those central goals that are rooted in your core values. And, and you know, those core values ideally should be justice for all and equality for all and upholding the, you know, basic human rights for everyone, um, mm. for all your citizens. And, and, you know, it's just, it's shocking how far beyond the pale we've gone with this administration and that that has happened with the blessing of the evangelical church. 
And, and so again, it was this idea that at a certain point, you just need to be able to have that prophetic voice and stand up and say, no, this will never be acceptable from the perspective of a kingdom ethic. This cannot be who we are and what we represent. And so it was, it was gathering this coalition of folks who, despite their opposing political views, you know, on generally, um, despite the fact that they would generally be located on various places on the political spectrum, we're still able to come together and say, you know what, this is not okay. This Mm. is not who we are. Um, and this will never be okay. And, and then to center around that point and then to provide them with a platform to express it in, in different ways. Hmm. Yeah. And and that's, that's the thing that's so, so I think so gripping about, keeping the faith is that it, it really is like, even as I was like looking over the table of contents, I was like, there's so many people here. Like it's almost impossible for someone to try to write this off as some sort of hit piece on like the, the inerrant Donald Trump. Um, but it's, uh, it, 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 but I know people still do it and people have done it. And even when I've sent them the link to this book, people have done that. Um, and, and I think another thing that I always get is like, well, like, oh, like you guys have brought it up a little bit of like endorsing Biden and not endorsing Biden and, and not being like full fledged Biden supporters. So I think that's something that's really I, I don't want to say it's difficult, but but for especially growing up, like I was kind of always taught that like you needed to full fledged support a political candidate to back them in an election. And so within the within a kingdom ethic like you said Susie what do you do with someone like Biden of like okay like I like for me like I've I voted for Biden I don't want Trump so I voted for Biden um like what what would you say to someone where it's like well you're just compromising because you're not like what what do you do with someone that's attacking that as a compromise I mean I think so I'll I'll jump in and then I would I would love to hear Sai and Jonathan's thoughts as well but I think, um, you know, another way, another thing that we talked about throughout the course of this project was the need to expand our moral imagination when it comes to how we engage politically as Christians. And mm-hmm. so I think a lot of it is about reframing and trading out your distorted lenses through which you're viewing um, policy, through which you're viewing this election in particular. I think when when folks make it out to be this dichotomy of the lesser of two evils, that says to me that they're not viewing it um, with all in all of its complexity. Hmm. And, and I think that we need, you know, as Christians, I think our theology needs to be informed, not just by verses that we pluck out of context. We need to have a holistic theology that includes all of the Bible. And, and I think similarly in the way that we engage politically, we need to have a political engagement that is not just pinned on these simple issues that we oversimplify and, um, you know, not these reductionist narratives that we've bought into. It needs to apply to all of what human flourishing should look like, all of what the common good should look like. And, and viewing that in a way that is informed by, again, this idea of a, a kingdom ethic or informed by, you know, the politics of Jesus. So, um, yeah, so I think that's kind of my my initial response to that. But again, I'd love to, to hear what Sai and Jonathan have to add. 
I think the the way to compromise uh, is is the opposite of what you just. I think if you're throwing all of your support behind one person, saying this is the Christian candidate or this is the Christian platform, that's the compromise. Mm. You know, saying your 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 view of the kingdom of God of of God Himself, I think, has to be very small to do that. Mm. Um, it's, and I mean, even it's it's just like even kind of remarkable that people think that like what an incredible coincidence that you <laughs> you in this time <laughs> in this country with this party platform have just nailed it the whole Bible in this platform you know like yeah. you're, you're never going to find that uh, ever and it, you know from anybody you're not gonna yeah. you know, so I I just because because we are flawed people we are flawed people making up flawed political parties making up a flawed country and. You're, you're not going to find anyone who just enacts biblical politics when they get into office. Hmm. So then the question becomes who's doing the most good or doing the least damage. Like, I think that's, that's, that to me, honestly, is what my, my voting thinking comes down to. Hmm. Yeah. My head is spinning. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Because I, I, I don't want to just say what Susie and Sai said differently. Um, like just a, another version of that. So I'm going to talk and then we'll see. But I think <laughs> I think it's who is going to orient us towards the kingdom. Um, and, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, this is God's person. And I think that is a, a really strong line that we actually need to draw. No Democrat in the in modern history that I can name ever said that they were God's candidate. No one, they have never said that. It's never been part of their platform. Yeah. But explicitly since Dwight Eisenhower, there has been a narrative that this is God's person which is in line with Billy Graham and the, the onset of my, the evangelicalism that all of us were encultured in, right? And so mm-hmm. I think to say that, oh, I'm just going to pick the lesser of two evils, and this is what um, Dr. I think Dr. Birdsall's essay gets at, is that like if, if you just say, I'm choosing the lesser of two evils, then I think you're just lazy, I think mm. you're lazy, I think you're complacent, and I think you're not actually affected by what happens. Mm. So something yeah. something that that I marvel at about um, – now, I'm going to reference a Marxist movement. People can call me a Marxist if they want to. But I think the Zapatistas are amazing in their level of political involvement and engagement from an early age. And so in the Zapatistas, from what I understand, every single person serves in political office. Mm. There's just a rotation of people. And one thing I was reading was that it's like every two weeks you change representatives. And so if you have to serve, then you have to be engaged. Like you have to know what's happening or you're just abdicating responsibility. You can't do that for your community because there's a community mindset. It's baked in. Whereas in the United States, the goal is to not have government bother you at all unless you're under an oppressive system within you mean you're resisting government the majority of the time, trying to get other people who this quote unquote government is not affecting to pay attention to what the government is doing to you, right? So mm. the only time quote unquote 
missions folks come to New York City is to serve. The only time people go to Hawaii is for tourism, right? So you're only coming to consume a product. You get an experience, mm-hmm. you see what happens, and you go home. You get flowers and then you and food at the beach, and you go home, right? People are not willing to incarnate into the issues that we can actually engage in ways that are transformative and helpful. And so yeah. I, I would, like, I would hope that people who are reading the book and asking these questions would be diligent in their in their stewardship of power. You know, when I read Millie's essay about being an undocumented person, I go to vote for her. Because mm. you can't vote. And there's at least 10 to 15 other million people who can't vote. Like yeah. when I go to the poll. So I hope I, I hope I didn't just say what science Susie said differently, but I think it's I think we need to not stop being lazy and expect more from one another about in our political engagement. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what's so I don't think difficult cuts it. I think that's what's so frustrating about about this current moment of I mean, Jonathan, you and I were talking about it earlier. This idea that somehow like the I don't know if it's a if it's an end times view or if it's just a like current times view. But there's this idea that like this is what Jesus would want us to do. Like this is the this is God's anointed. Like this is this is going to usher in the end times or like it's going to reveal a international pedophile ring and put everyone in prison. <laughs> like just all these ridiculous notions of like what's going to happen of like how how is it that something that claims to be in. And I mentioned to you earlier, my, my, my friend, Jonathan, who, who's like, I just really want to focus on Jesus and all of this. I'm like, well, you're definitely not focusing on the first century colonized rabbi that was Jesus of Nazareth. Like you're focused on something completely different. Um, but, but for you guys, like what, like, what is it that, that makes people so, I mean, I don't want to say gullible because I feel like that, that attacks a person's intelligence. Um, but like what what is it that makes people so susceptible to this idea that oh I can follow Jesus but also support an administration that's made itself completely opposed to everything that this person I say I love stood for or stands for I'll I'll go first because I studied Jerry Falwell and then I Sai and Susie I know have different perspectives but I I think when I look at the genogram, the family history of the Falwells going back to um, post-Civil War. Um, So after the Civil War in the South, which is where like these evangelicals, like the modern version of the evangelicals that we see came from, um, and then left the South during the the Sunbelt migration where wealthier whites could flee to Western states to get away from desegregation. like people shouldn't just a tangent. People shouldn't be surprised about what's happening in Oregon. Like Oregon was supposed to be a white utopia. Mm. So we need to understand like where people went and how they got there and what their goals were. Um, but Jerry Falwell had um, and his his great grandfather, along with his wife's great grandfather, these people were slave owners. These people had land, and these people lost in the Civil War. 
And so then, quote unquote, all the things they had were, quote, taken from them, right? But they were used to being Christian and owning slaves. So this hypocrisy is fine. They're used to doing those things, right? And so then you fast forward and they're used to being Christian and vilifying academia. They're used to being Christian and calling science the devil. They're used to being Christian and building institutions that pretend to be something and then are something else. They're used to doing this. So hypocrisy is baked into the pie already, right? And so yeah. looking at Jerry Falwell Jr., he has absolutely no problem doing the things that he did because of the things that his fathers did because of the thing that his father did. They all thought they were really great people, and they had a theology that said they were really great people, even though they owned slaves, even though they were unapologetic, even though they were, you know, Jerry Falwell being supportive of apartheid, being supportive of the American schools in, the, in Central America, flying around advocating for the foreign policy that happened in the Northern Triangle, which is what we deal with right now, with the exodus from um, Central America to America's borders, right? Like all of these things, I think, are baked into baked into the past that hypocrisy and faithfulness look like exactly the same thing. Um, hmm. And so that that's what I would just say from an intellectual standpoint is that like in the familial history of a lot of these leaders and then the institutions that they began, the hypocrisy is baked in and, okay, and blessed. So yeah, it's, it's, it's in there from the beginning hmm. and it has to be exercised. Not exercise, yeah. but exorcised, right? It has to be called. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. All right. So, Susie, I've written down in response to this question, Matt, Randy, and Greg. If you were going to talk about any of them, go ahead. Or whatever you were going to talk about, and then I'll fill in. <laughs> uh, I'd go for it. Go for it, Zai. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, Matt Lovkin is uh, a... a He's a he's ordained pastor. I think he mostly works in tech now, but he wrote an essay in our book about uh, specifically about QAnon, which you referenced before with the the pedophile uh, uh, lizard people who run our government, um, <laughs> the conspiracy theory, and um, you know why Christians are so susceptible to it. And so he goes through um, the history of dispensationalism in America uh, and mm. the you know the the all of the end times foretelling and the interpretations of the book of revelation that led us to, you know, the left behind series of the late great planet earth book, or, you know, all of these things that uh, uh, American Christians consumed pretty voraciously for a couple of decades <laughs> in the 20th century. And um, just led people to this place where they were scrutinizing inscrutable text for signs that predicted uh, like this kind of insider knowledge that you or signs that predicted end times and gave you this insider knowledge about what exactly was going to happen and like who was really in control. Uh, he talks about like authoritarian pastors, people who lead with like an authoritarian style who insist to their congregations that they are the only ones worth listening to and that everybody else is an enemy who's trying to trick them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he speaks about those prophecies and the thing i like about those prophecies those ways of thinking that we've kind of the church has sort of trained its people up in for for a couple of decades and how that leaves you susceptible uh to all the things that you were talking about he does a great job i think of pointing to the fact that the actual prophets of the bible do not pin the fault 
uh, do not do not you know when they look at the problems that their societies were facing, whether they're in Babylon or um, you know they've been taken over by Persia, whichever prophet you're talking about, they are um, looking to Israel's own behavior to explain what has happened to them, <laughs> their mm-hmm. own faithfulness or lack thereof, you know the things that God has done, the things that they have done. They're not looking toward the powers that have oppressed them. Right. And he kind of says, you know, beware of prophets who ask nothing of you and only flatter you, which I think is like uh, just a fantastic lesson that I think people should take to heart. Um, Yeah. uh, Randy Woodley is uh, one of our essays. He's uh, writes about Western dualism. He's Native American. He writes about kind of differences between indigenous and Western theology and how Western theology has always been infected with, you know, this separation between uh, the spiritual and the physical and how that's kind of plagued us. And, and I think that factors in a lot into how we can think about, you know, like, like your friend says, I just want to make this about Jesus, right? It's just me and Jesus doing our spiritual thing and all of these physical, worldly, secular concerns are something else, are not mm. wrapped up in this thing that, that me and Jesus have this individualistic thing, this, you know, Western European individualistic thing that me and Jesus have going together. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, and then, you know, Greg, which is the opening essay in the book kind of goes right at this idea of, uh, you know, this criticism of just let faith be faith and leave politics out of it. And basically just says, you're, you're not going to be inoculated against any of the dangers that are, uh, in the air and the politics around you. If you don't talk about them, right. You're going mm. to, float along with them you're going to just follow the current you know and um we don't get out of white supremacy by not talking about white supremacy right yeah 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 i mean i i definitely second what what jonathan and and Sai were just um sharing and Sai did such a great job of bringing in the just the really great pieces in the book that talk about this i think all that i would really add to that is just this idea, because you asked, why are we so susceptible? And the, the thought that came to mind for me is, well, I mean, human nature. I think Matt gets at that, that it's just sort of human nature to <laughs> want thing, yeah. to, <laughs> to want to, to reach for the narratives that flatter you and, and set the problem outside of yourself um, mm. and at a distance from yourself. And, um, and then, but also, of course, the important historical ways that, that Sai pointed out from the piece that that got us there um and then also just so so one of the things I talk about in I wrote a piece for the book called when religion becomes idolatry and it critiques this idea of quote-unquote Christian worldview and points to the fact that because of human nature when we try to create these systems of thought that we think are airtight and um, righteous, we, we need to be very careful because oftentimes what we're really doing is, is recreating God in our own image mm. and creating um, systems that provide us with easy answers that are really more about propping up our way of life and allowing us to sacrifice others on the altar of self are more about that than about true worship and genuine allegiance to, to the call of Christ. And I think, you know, you could also then ask, well, then why have American Christians specifically been so susceptible? I mean, if it's human nature, then it's a universal thing. What is so particular? And, and 
and the book does do such a great job of, of digging into some of the, the history of specifically in the United States over the past several decades. Brandy Miller also touches on that a little bit in her piece, Mark Scandrett. There's just some really good stuff in there that I would point folks to. But overall, I think that the theme is sort of um, a little bit when you've been fed so long on the fat of empire, you, you cease to engage critically, um, self-critically. And, mm-hmm. and you begin to think that all of these things are blessings because you are right. And anyone who tries to oppose you is wrong. And so we've just gotten too comfortable with ourselves um, and with the narratives that, that we've been so easily, you know, imbibing. And this is also something I'll, I'll point it back to, to Jonathan and his book, 12 Lies, where he talks about white American folk religion you know, that's, that's, you know, one of the, the primary narratives and idolatries that we've been worshiping at the foot of as, as particularly white American Christians. So yeah, there's, I guess that's my sort of more general answer. And then once you try to get into the specificity of it, I think that's where these, these specific essays really start to, to flesh that out in more concrete ways. Hmm. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many, <clears throat> excuse me, there's so many so many things that that needed to be addressed that that you guys have done such a such a great job of of addressing and tackling and and um, making accessible, but also I, I don't know if it's just the the multitude of people that you have working on this project or what it is, but there's there's this idea that to disagree with someone means that you must be apathetic to where they're coming from. But one of the things that really bleeds through this, <clears throat> excuse me, the, this work is, is an understanding, like is a, is a loving, like, Hey, like we are better than this. Like we, like we don't need to prostitute ourselves out to a political party to get, uh, like whatever we want out of it. Like we, we're worth more than this. Jesus is worth more than this. Like the legacy of the church, the cloud of witnesses, the the sacraments are worth more than this. Um, and obviously like tonight is the night where, where things get decided. And, and so I guess like what for, for people that, that are going to read this book and it's, it's a, it's a sweet assurance of like, I'm on the right path and I, I feel equipped to, to move forward and live a life in practicality with late stage capitalism and, and evangelicalism and, and Trump Christianity, uh, regardless of what happens tomorrow. And even for the people that are like, I don't agree with what these authors are saying. Like, what is, what is the hope? Like, what are you guys hoping to will be accomplished with this work? So there's a book called Hermanas by uh, Noemi Vega um, and two other wonderful women are slipping my mind right now. But because I know Noemi personally. Um, but Wait, she- Susie knows another one of them personally. Yeah, Christy Garza Robinson yes. is one of the other authors. Yeah. yeah, and like the reality that like we can be mentored by people in scripture. So they talk a lot about um, like Miha theology, abuela theology, like being able to be mentored by these women of faith in scripture. 
Um, and so I would hope that people who pick up this book could be mentored from a distance by the leaders that are in the book. Um, hmm. I think for me, it's like, I need to learn what it's like to be a brown, like Indian person, like in the country. So I need to have dialogue with the text that, um, that Charles wrote. Like, I, I don't know what it's like to be dark skinned, but have had a case in the government where you tried to be white. That that happened for high caste Indians in the United States government. That went all the way to the Supreme Court when they tried mm. to integrate schools in California. They were not black, so they should be white. And that's when whiteness was actually that was the first time whiteness was was codified. Like, no, you are not. And then they began to create what that looks like, right? Um, yeah. But I, I don't know what it's like. So I could be mentored by him, like engaging with that reality and because these folks are still alive, you can email them. You can go to our website, keepingthefaithbook.com and like click on the contributors and like read about how to contact them. Like, um, because the reality is because our churches are segregated, our communities are redlined and segregated. We won't cross paths with each other, save for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the desire to be discipled. Yeah. So, um, I would hope that people pick up the book and then engage with it and the authors and the content for, for years to come. I, I really hope that, that that's true and that happens. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this this might sound uh, like a strange thing to say at first, but I mean, my hope first and foremost is that people would read it and that it would make them uncomfortable, that mm. it would disorient them Initially, um, I think that sometimes we need to be disoriented in in our stance and um, that that can set us off on a journey towards what truth really is and what it really looks like. And, um, and, and I think that's really important. And I think that, you know, when we talk about following Christ and, and taking up our cross, that, you know, there's, uh, when we talk about suffering, we, we need to be willing to take on ourselves these, enter into these narratives and stories that are deeply painful. And sometimes they're deeply painful because we find out that we are not the victim. We are the oppressor. Mm. And, and I think we need to sit with that. I think we need to weep over that. I think we need to deeply, deeply repent of that. And I think that it will take years um, if we are going to see that kind of deep, deep uh, disorientation and reorientation in the church, I think it will take years. But I hope that this book is the beginning of that process. Um, and I won't even say, I, I guess it's unfair to even call it the beginning, because what you'll see is that these contributors have been talking about these things, writing about these things for years. Um, but it's all kind of, you know, coming to the surface now, because all of the hate is coming to the surface. And so I, I don't want to, you know, make too bold a claim that we're the first ones to say these things, but I do hope and pray that this is a moment where the church in the United States can wake up to all of the mm -hmm. violence that we've done. And most of all to ourselves, and actually even more than that, to the image of God. And, and so I think, you know, because that's the real tragedy of idolatry is that we, we are doing violence against the image of God and, and trading him out for something so much less. And so I think 
if we if we can start to spur people into that process of reclaiming our, our worship and reclaiming God as 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 the one that we ultimately have our allegiance to, then then I think we will have done well. Hmm. I think it'll be, Susie, the beginning of the journey for some people, right? It's de- I think you're right to point out it's not for a whole lot of people, but <laughs> like we, I, you know, we have heard stories of people who have picked up the book and for the first time ever are seriously thinking differently about their politics than they than they had before. Um, so yeah, I think we are trying to do. You know, there's obviously we released this just before an election. We have heard a couple of people say like, oh, I voted differently because I read your book, which is cool. But that's mm-hmm. that was the goal, right? Like we're trying to do that. What the, You know, what we're trying to do is is make people think differently. It's, a, it's just like it's going to necessarily be a little bit more abstract than that. We're trying to do the, the deeper work. We're trying to get a book in people's hands that makes them um, reconsider really long held and important beliefs um, or find a lot of solidarity and community with people who have been unsettled by the same things that that our authors have been unsettled by in american christianity right so mm-hmm. um it's not just right i, I don't want to paint the picture that the book is just for trump supporters right the book is is for everyone who's trying to think um in a serious biblical way about these issues yeah yeah and and they are serious issues i mean it it, it don't like it I think even even now, kind of reflecting on, I don't, I don't remember who was talking about it, but it, we were talking about um, the 2016 election and how, like, there's this kind of idea that like people, like, in past elections, people have referenced previous elections, especially when there's a second term, like, oh, it'll just be like the last time, but there's definitely this different tone, even for people that are heavily advocating for Trump. Like there's not this ability to be like, Oh yeah, it'll just be like last time because they've seen like the, I mean, the chaos that, that has kind of been created in, in the wake of, of this administration. And I think something for so many of us is like, what do we do? And and I've said it a million times and, and maybe it's just because that's the, that's the hope and, and theme of the podcast is to, is to help people, have practical ways to live out their faith when they're going through seasons of, of, like you said, Susie, uh, of disorientation, reorientation. Um, and, and we need voices like, like y'all's to, to speak into that. So I guess my last question, because we're running short on time, uh, for each of you, I mean, you, if you guys had a few minutes just to speak to, to the people that, that need that solidarity, like you said, Cy, that, that need that, um recognition of like yeah like you're not crazy like there are a bunch of other people that feel the exact same way you do like what what would you say to to the people tonight that are that are nervous the people that tonight that that in some ways like maybe voted against the cultural conditioning they were raised in like for for people who have to go to church on sunday and answer the question of like who did you vote for and have to be afraid of, of retaliation from their congregations. Like, like what is it that, that you have to say to, to the, to the people that um, are, are trying to live out their faith and steward it in a, 
in a Christ-like way that, that makes Christ look as good as he is and says that he is. We try to, or well, again, what we have in the book is a little bit dependent on what people wrote, but some of the stuff, a lot of the things that we have in there, we have in there because they're so hopeful, even in the midst of acknowledging incredible pain around uh, politics in the U.S., uh, Jonathan before referenced Millie Akihe's, uh piece about being undocumented in America. And, you know, she ends it by saying that uh, she was speaking recently with a German Christian who was telling her uh, all of the horrible things that Christians did in support of Hitler in her country. And, you mm -hmm. know, recounting that history and like just talking about how horrible, you know, speaking about it from a place of confession and repentance and, you know, Millie spends this whole essay talking about how awful it's been under Donald Trump for people like her. And um, mm. she basically gets to the end and says, you know, I hope that I'll be able to see Americans repent of all of this in my lifetime, the same way that this, this German Christian was sitting here talking about it now. Yeah. But even if I don't, on this side of heaven, you know, when we're, when we're there with God and America's gone, it's just a memory. You know, everyone is going to repent of what's been done to us. Like that is the truth, you know, not like this, you know, the, the, without uh, diminishing the pain and the complication and the difficulty of what everyone is going through now at all, you can still acknowledge the kingdom of God is coming. Yeah. Period. <laughs> right. No <Yeah>. qualification. <laughs> and, um, I, you will find a lot of people who live in the tension of that hope uh, being unrealized, but being nevertheless true in the book. Yeah. Uh, just second all of that. And I think there's two scriptures and just like one kind of discipleship thing is that like Jesus said, or it was said about Jesus, I think in second Corinthians that, there are there were no temptations common to man that he did not overcome. And I think mm -hmm. that it is tempting for us to run away from conflict, to not want to take up our cross and follow Jesus, to not want to lay our lives down, to not want to seek first the kingdom of God, to not to, to, to make the list, right? Jesus was tempted to do that. He could have done what his mom wanted. He could have done what his family wanted. He could have done what Peter wanted when Peter was like, don't go, don't go get crucified, you know? Mm. But Jesus didn't do that because he said he was obedient to death. Philippians chapter two, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? And so I think this is a discipleship moment for people. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that it's not just Jesus, is that he promises to provide what you have been, what you are losing and more. Because there will be and need to be people who leave terrible patriot churches. Because that's not a church. That's an altar to the empire. Yeah. And so you need to leave. And, and it's, not, it's not just like for your own sake. Like it's for the sake of the gospel that you are leaving. And you can leave an institution without disowning your family. Yeah. You can leave an institution without cutting off all of your friends. The illusion of a cult is that when you leave, you lose everybody. That's that's a cult. That's not Christianity, right? 
Like Jesus doesn't excommunicate Peter because he abandons him. Doesn't shout down Thomas and make him feel ashamed when he asks for proof that he is the real son of God, the risen from the dead. Like Jesus doesn't do that, right? And so I think when Peter says, when Jesus says to Peter in John chapter six, like, are you going to leave me too? Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus says, like, you know, no one who is left, like fathers, mothers, sisters, and cousins and stuff, will lose, like, will we'll lose that, right? They're going to get much more if you choose me. And so I think my exhortation to the person that is counting the cost of building a house on the rock as opposed to building a house on sand is that you get to participate in the redemptive work of the kingdom of God for the rest of your life. That's what you get. Yeah. You know? Um, and the last thing I would say is kind of a challenge would be like, now you feel how everybody else has felt. Right? <laughs> like you, like the anonymous essay from the young woman that from Palestine, like going to churches and feeling on the outside. Now you know how Tamise feels going to church and feeling on the outside. Now you know how Brandy feels. Now you know how I felt. Now you know how Greg feels. Now you know, like, now you know, like, yeah. what it's like to be on the outside of the quote unquote family, but be with Jesus. Because if Jesus showed up at most of our churches, we would reject him too. Like, let's let's just be real, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. 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 Well, shoot. I mean, it's it's uh, Jonathan. You, last last question for all of you guys. Something that we we mentioned earlier was just talking about hope of uh, something that I mean I, I'm kind of convinced of i could be wrong like please please correct me if i'm wrong but uh something that i've i've through the through the wisdom of of a bunch of other people much smarter than myself one of one of whom being mark van steenwick from uh the center for prophetic imagination um him and i had a conversation one time we were talking about uh sustainable activism um and he mentioned that like a lot of people my age, like in the, in their twenties who were, who are in this, uh, like early twenties who, who are involved with this progressive Christian, with progressive Christianity, trying to be uh, vocal in social issues, um, find themselves being fueled by passion that's based off outrage. Um, and outrage is important, but something that he said that was really profound to me was that the only sustainable activism is, is based off of hope. Um, and so I guess tonight on this kind of nerve wracking night, I'd, I'd really like to just end by asking you guys, what do you, what are you hopeful for over the next four years? Yeah. I mean, I, I love that you, you brought that up, Chris, because, um, to, to be honest, that was one thing that we had in mind in putting together this book, even from the point of of sending out the prompts, we, we asked our contributors to also reflect on um, if, if, you know, it, they felt called to do so or, or led to do so, what their hope is for the, the future of our nation. And uh, even beyond that, the, the future of Christian engagement in, in the political sphere. And yeah, I think, I think, as we look forward, the the hope is that as Christians, we, you know, would model the politics of Jesus and 
would hold our government accountable to that and would be okay with the fact that sometimes that's going to put us on the outside, mm. um, that, that sometimes it's going to make us popular, uh, unpopular, both inside and outside the church. Um, and just to, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And I think that goes back to the, the question that you asked earlier that I think if we are going to engage deeply engage, I think we really need to ask ourselves, is Christ really more than enough for me? It's, it's something that I feel like we have almost commodified and commercialized in American churches. You know, we sing the songs about that, but do we really live like that's true? And, Mm -hmm. and I think that when we're able to step out and, and, you know, take those leaps of faith, regardless of what the people around us are going to think, because we, we feel deeply convicted that that is what Christ is calling us to do. Then, then I think that we will see things in our communities transform. First of all, we'll be transformed. And then I think we'll see our communities transformed and hopefully, you know, our nation transformed. If our nation can be transformed, maybe we can have more of a kingdom impact on the world, because I think that the witness of the church is at stake in terms of how we engage politically. We are foolish to think that we can disengage our politics from the gospel that we proclaim. Christ was political insofar as he cares about people, deeply, deeply cares about people, cares about how they, how they live, how they eat, you know, cares about their their flourishing and their development, cares that they know that they are loved and valued and seen, mm-hmm. cares about all people. And so we, we need to be deeply committed to living that out in any way that we can, wherever we can. And, and I think too, just to jump back to your previous question real quick and, and to sort of my answer to it just now, I don't want to say though that that means that as Christians, we should just be sort of lone rangers and be out there without community. I think, you know, my hope, and and as I shared, we, we've already been seeing this happen in some ways, and it's been so incredible that there will be, a, you know, a new community of believers who are committed to doing these things and supporting one another in that and calling one another out in that and, you know, holding one another accountable. And my personal testimony to that is already this book, because for me, setting out on this project was really a leap of faith. And now I have these two new incredible friends and brothers in Christ, I and Jonathan, that I'm now, you know, doing life with remotely. And this community of brothers and sisters through this book and through the people who have been, you know, gracious enough and courageous enough to, to read it and to respond. And so I think, you know, that, that doesn't mean life apart from community. It means an enriched community that is more in line with the rule and reign of God. And, and that goes back to Walter Brueggemann's concept of prophetic imagination, that it's about critiquing the status quo and bringing society more in line with, with the character and reign of God. Hmm. I don't know that I necessarily have um, like particular things that I'm looking forward to two in the next four years, mostly because I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> um, and so I was trying uh, to, to sort of think of something to answer the question with. Um, but I, I think maybe that's a little bit the point. Like, I think my, my hope is in 
continuing to to move step by step every day in on a path that is toward jesus with other people who are trying to do the same thing and i i know that i'm not necessarily promised anything in terms of what's going to happen tomorrow or next year in 10 years or whatever um for doing that except that i'm promised communion with god which no matter what your physical circumstances are (laughs) Hmm. um you know like Susie was saying in theory that's supposed to be more than enough for us and I, yeah. I think that is, you know, in sort of being kind of politically homeless is sort of the word that a lot of people use. I don't know how much I think of that phrase, but um, I, I think that's what you find, right? Like, like Jonathan was saying, you when you understand what it's like to be outside of the norm, outside of kind of the comfortable bubble of where the church is supposed to uh, where you're supposed to be in if you're a part of the church that's where you're gonna find jesus right like jesus was out in the wilderness with john he wasn't in the middle of jerusalem um, yeah. so i think that's where my hope is and i think i'm glad we're talking about this I, I think hope is incredibly crucial like a crucial part of our discipleship and so i hope people find encouragement in that hmm. <laughs> deep exhale uh oh yeah my mic is on i thought i hadn't unmuted myself yet <laughs> <laughs> um i think man i hope this isn't a reach um i think the level of anxiety that is felt about the next four years is a barometer for like how much we have our hope in christ like I four years ago I was when so I Maya was my oldest daughter Maya is four and Everest is seven months and so they were born in years that Trump was elected right because I I personally believe that Trump will be elected again um, regardless of what happens and so I remember getting up in the middle of the night to give a bottle to Maya and not being able to sleep because the results hadn't come in yet. Hmm. And I was like, why am I so anxious? Why do I keep checking my phone? And I was like, what it what am I what am I hoping that Hillary Clinton accomplishes for me? Yeah. And what do I want her to do for me, for us, for my family, right? And what I was really hoping for was just some relief right from the constant yeah. pressure because michael brown was killed trayvon martin was killed flannel cast did like so there was this monstrous moment where I, was, I just need to rest oh hillary clinton cannot give me rest she can't jesus can do that right yeah and i think similarly like i don't i, don't, I would like to say in my like sunday school brain that my hope is in Christ the next four years. Um, I think the problem with that is I don't realize, and I think we don't realize how much duress we are all under because of the environment that has been created around us. Um, And for anyone who's ever cast out demons, um, there's this moment, this is the reach, but there's this moment 
<laughs> where you can't like I can't do anything else for the person. Right? But yeah. he has to show up and do what he does. I don't know how it happens, but the demon is gone. Right? Um there's no power in Jonathan Walton's name. There's no power in Susie LaHoo's name. There's, there's no power in Sai's name when we talk about powers and principalities. And that's what we're talking about. Like, white supremacy is a power and principality, right? Like, greed is a power and principality. These things are cosmic and generational. They are not, like, in the middle of right now. Like, oh, we just thought about being greedy, narcissistic, and prideful. No, no, no. Like, that's been a problem since Cain, right? And so yeah, I, I am uh, – but the thing about deliverance, particularly demonic deliverance, is that there's this moment where you have to put your hope in Jesus because there's literally nothing else you can do because it's a spiritual battle happening for this person. Yeah. And that, I think, is the most – the most the crucial thing for the resurrection of the church in America is that there has to be deliverance and only Jesus can do that. And on the other mm-hmm. side of that deliverance is blessing and resurrection and blessing. So I hope that whatever over the next four years that this nonsense dies and out of that comes a group of faithful people to point the remnant towards Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm I, personally, I I am hopeful that that keeping the faith will 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 be a a catalyst. It will be a um a place of solace. It'll be a a mirror for for rebuke where it's necessary. I I, I genuinely hope that like and believe that this book is going to um do great things, regardless of of what happens over the course of this week and. I, uh, we're running short on time. So uh, just really quickly, like where can people find the book? Where can people interact with you guys? Sure. So keeping the is where you can read more about the book and find all the links to buy it on your platform. Um, at we are keeping the faith on Instagram and Facebook, uh, is, is our social media. And then, uh, I, I guess I'm at Cy on Twitter. I'm at Susie Lahoud on Twitter and um, S Lahoud Seven on on Instagram. Yeah, and I am Jonathan Walton on Facebook. Um, and then the easiest way is uh, Jonathan Walton six five five on Instagram. Um, and then on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash ived. Hmm. Well, heck yeah, guys! I I before we close, I. Uh... I, I usually end every podcast like this of of uh, with with a podcast that, that kind of revolves around spiritual practices and, and hopes to help people kind of form their own and, and maintain and, and discover new ways to to express spirituality in, in new seasons of, of condition. Um, one of the things that I've I've really seen lacking and especially like right now in this present moment that I think really needs to continue to be demonstrated is, is the discipline of encouragement. And so I just really want to vocalize to you guys of, of how, like, I mean, I know I've said it a couple of times of how important, like, I think that this work is, 
um, how revolutionary in, in many ways, revolutionary both in nuance, but also in practicality of, of putting together a, a piece of work where finally for so many people, it's like, oh, like I'm not crazy. Like all these things that I've been thinking, like there are other people that think these things with me. And now like it, it allows people to step out in, in peace. It allows people to step out in comfort. It allows people to step out or not comfort in like a, like a, you, you know what I mean? In, in a, in a way where they feel advocated for and, and they have people to step out in solidarity with, like it, it emboldens people to, to speak the truth that they believe deep down is necessary to speak. And so like, I genuinely believe regardless of what happens that this book is going to help equip uh, the next generation of, of activists, of, of leaders, of pastors, of, of whoever it may be in both the, whether it be the next four years of, of Trump or, or it be the, the wake of the last four years that, that this book will do a great work in the church. And so I can't help, but thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for the ministry that you guys have, have put together. Thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate it. And this has been a great conversation and I really appreciate the, the humility and the, the passion with which you're pursuing, uh, what you're doing with this podcast, the, the journey that you're on. Absolutely. You should um, talk to Susie about how she published the book and get ready for yours in a few years. That's right. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh, yeah. Let us know. Thank you, Chris. This has been a really, really good conversation. We're grateful to have had it with you today. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. <laughs>